4, we're going to get, uh, we're going to start at verse 7 and hopefully get to the end of the chapter today. Uh, for those who have been following in this series in Ezra, we have seen that opposition arises, right? So the work of the Lord is continuing. They got a lot of work done. They even got the foundation of the entire temple uh, laid. The old men weep because it's not the former temple. The young men celebrate because God is doing something new. Remember that? But then opposition arises. The peoples of the land, the Samaritans, who would become the Samaritans, uh, who have sort of syncretistic worship, try to join them. They say no, and they do what? They bribe officials, and they cause as much problem as they can. And now we're going to continue that, looking at verse 7, really looking at two letters that have been preserved for thousands of years for us, the letter of these adversaries sent to the king, um, king of Persia, and the letter from the king back to the adversaries. And we're going to look at those today and really look at how we respond to opposition. I think we can gleam some insights on how we respond when we face opposition. First of all, we will face opposition, right? I mean, that's not an if, that's a when. It will arise in our lives. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that you're going to face opposition or trial or hardship in your life. I mean, everybody, in one sense, faces different type of opposition in their life. Um, I would say as a Christian, you, you probably face more, <laughs> more than you, w- than you would um, if you were not a Christian, not more than others. Some others around the world um, are facing great suffering who are not Christians, for sure. But following Jesus only adds to the trial and the opposition that you face in life. And of course, God could at any moment remove it. I mean, he could stop it. In fact, Jesus could come back today. He comes back in the Father's fixed time. He could end all of our trials, our hardship, our grief, um, all opposition, but he doesn't do it. Not yet. Why is that? Peter says it's every day is God's patience wanting more to come to eternal life. God is also shaping us and molding us for eternity. Which means even that opposition is meant to be part of his plan. Even those trials and that hardship that we face are being used by God to actually mold us. God could have rebuilt the temple in a day if he wanted to. That wasn't the plan. The plan was to mold and shape Israel as part of their renewal in the ways they would respond to the opposition that they face. And the same, friends, is true of us. Look with me at Ezra 4, 7 to 24. How we respond to opposition matters. How we respond to opposition matters. We read this. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants... The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. 
They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now... The letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt." until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. May his spirit add his blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the application of his word this morning. The opposition uh, arises for sure, and how we respond to that opposition matters. Here's where we're going, 7 to 16, looking at that letter. Um, uh, 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 sorry, that should say, yes, yeah, verse 7 to verse 16. We should ex- uh, expect opposition uh, and often deception. 17 to 23, we should seek peace and submission to authority. And then verse 24, the final verse, we should not lose heart when we feel defeated. And defeated there in quotation marks. So first, 7 to 16, we should expect opposition and often deception. Uh, They write a letter to the king. So this group of adversaries are not going to give up. They're doing everything they can. Their their opposition lasts for about 100 years before the temple is finally rebuilt and the walls surrounding Jerusalem. They don't give up. In fact, they write this formal letter to the king of Persia, put their own sort of reputations on the line, um, and they even translate it to Aramaic, probably to Persian, multiple languages to make it seem so formal. Now, what you may not have noticed uh, from just sort of reading it over is the amount of exaggeration, lies, and flattery they use, assumptions and pretensions that they use um, in this letter to make Israel seem as horrible and as wicked as possible. So just to show you uh, what's going on here, they write, of course, make themselves seem uh, very formal, right? The commander, and he has a scribe writing the letter for him. But notice who he adds to the list of the people who who are against the rebuilding, right? It's not just a group of, you know, some folks who who offered to help and got rejected. He adds there, the judges, the governors. None of them mentioned by name, of course, right? Anonymously, governors, just a whole bunch of governors. 
the officials, the Persians. Remember, he's writing to the king of Persia. So there's a bunch of Persians who are really upset about this rebuilding too. The men of Erech, the Babylonians, the former kingdom. So a bunch of Babylonians that are involved. The men of Susa, the Elamites. You notice what he puts in verse 10. The rest of the nations. <laughs> Everybody in the world um, is upset about this um, who, who were brought to, to the land here. Uh, they make themselves seem bigger, more threatening, more serious than the situation is. They use exaggeration. They use flattery. They talk about Osnapper here, and they call him the great and noble Osnapper, uh, the guy that viciously deported us, killed a bunch of us, and resettled us. But he's now the great and the noble Osnapper. We know a little bit about Osnapper. He was an educated king, but he was also a brutal king. But now he's not their enemy. He's not the bad guy that harmed them. He's the great and noble one, because we want to be on the side of the king. They use flattery to get onto the side of the king. What else do they do? They look to the king's interests. If you let this happen, you're going to lose taxes, <laughs> revenue, tolls. They're not going to pay their taxes if you allow this to happen. You're going to lose a lot of money, King Artaxerxes, if this happens. And then, of course, they add, and the honor of the king would be offended. <laughs> As if that's their real concern. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Persia. Uh, they don't know anything really about this new king of Persia. They just are somewhat overseen and oppressed. They were just willing to help rebuild the temple just a, a few uh, verses before this. And yet, what do they say here? God, the honor of the king would be offended if this gets rebuilt. You can sense they're just using all forms of deception. Friends, we should expect opposition. It, it's going to arise. It's not a question of when, it's a question of, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And how we respond to that opposition is of great importance. First of all, don't expect the devil to play fair. All right? Never expect it. So in some ways, that makes it easy, easy and obvious. The person or the people or the group that's using deception and lies are not on the side of good. I've never seen God bless someone using lies and deception and treachery and saying, that's what I really wanted you to do, and I'm going to bless that whatever ministry or church or group of people who use deception. Uh, it never works that way. Right? If this was a boxing match, for example... Uh, you could expect uh, that you're going to get hit below the belt, all right? You could expect there'll be some elbows thrown uh, in the corner. In fact, you could expect before the match even began, he probably bribed the judges, or at least tried to. Um, he, he also probably got onto steroids and did everything he could to mess with you and your team and your manager. He's not using, he's not following the rules. He's going to use every means necessary to defeat you. How do we respond? We respond like Jesus. First of all, look to Jesus and recognize that your standing doesn't come from the approval of the people around you. It doesn't matter how many enemies that you have. If you're in Christ, you are a child of God, you're his, and he's got this under his control. Remember the gospel. Christ died for your sins rose in triumph over the grave, calls us to repent and believe in him, and we find forgiveness and eternal life in him, and that is safe and secure in Jesus. But then we also look to the example of Jesus. How did he respond to lies and deception? He always 
always took the high road. Never did he get into the lies and deception. In fact, honestly, if you get into a battle with someone and you start to use the same tactics that the world uses, Satan's already won. That was the goal right there. It, it, was, it was not necessary to have you defeated. It was just to get you down into the dirt and into the mud, into the lies, into the flattery and the exaggeration. And if he does that, he's already won the day. Stay focused on the work of the Lord. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Continue to do what he has called you to do. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. That's what Jesus said. Forgive those who have sinned against you. Now you might be saying, Pastor Rick, you don't know the type of things I've gone through. You don't know what some people have said about me. You don't know what some people have done to me. Well, maybe you need to start by just praying for them. Uh, you know, if you read the Psalms, this is what's called the imprecatory Psalms, right? Uh, I love this. You know what imprecatory means? Uh, you're, you're calling down curses, basically, from heaven upon your enemy. And uh, if you read the Psalms, read them for yourself, they're in there. Uh, they're harsh. Let God destroy my enemy. Wipe them off the face of this earth. This one Psalm, I'm just going to tell you what it says. It says, take their infants, my enemies, my enemy's infants, and dash their heads against the rocks. That's in the Bible. That's a verse in the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms. But you know what? If C.S. Lewis said, as he struggled reading through these imprecatory Psalms, and why are they in the Bible? He began to realize that the psalmist was giving it to God and not taking vengeance in his own hands. And maybe that's as far as you can go right now. You say, I, I can't wish their forgiveness. I can't pray that they come to know Jesus. I just, I'm not there yet, Pastor Rick. Okay, begin praying to God and saying, God, you bring justice. I put this in your hands. I'm not going to take personal vindic vindictiveness against them. I give it to you. You know what begins to happen when you begin to pray for your enemies? You begin to forgive them. You begin to want them to come to know Jesus. Think about it. What is the greatest victory over an enemy? To turn them into a friend. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's not just to defeat them. That's to now turn a negative into a positive. They are now a brother or sister in Christ. When people insult, when people lie, when people deceive, when people betray, love them, pray for them, bless them, forgive them, and do not get distracted from the work of the Lord that he has set aside for you. We should expect opposition. In fact, friends, you can even take encouragement. If you're facing opposition doing the work of the Lord, it's probably because you're on the right track, right? If you, know, if you think about it, if you have a church, we'll, we'll speak in terms of churches, a church that is compromised with the world, they no longer teach the Bible, they don't really hold to the, to the gospel, they're just sort of spouting out the same stuff the world is spouting, there's probably not gonna be a lot of opposition. You know why? Because the devil's pretty happy with the situation as is. Why would he want to stir that up, right? Why would there be much spiritual warfare happening if a church has basically been neutralized and has no effect in transforming the world for Jesus? It's when God begins to work and lives start to get transformed by the power of the gospel that that's where you should expect opposition. It's when you're doing what God has called you to do personally, serving him in the manner that he has called you and gifted you to serve, that you face opposition. So in some ways, take confidence, take courage that if you're facing opposition right now, it's probably because you're on the right track. <laughs> so keep going, keep moving ahead. Sit there and say, oh, I was expecting it. Here it is. I knew it was coming. Now I'm going to continue to serve the Lord.
We should expect opposition and often deception. Verses 17 to 23, we see the response of the king to uh, these adversaries of Israel and um, his sort of being sold completely by what they say. Look at verses 17 to 23. We should seek peace and submission to authority. In verse 17, the king sends an answer. He answers Rahum and Shimshai the scribe. And uh, what does he say? Ultimately, again, he's a relatively new king at this time, Artaxerxes. So he's very quickly persuaded uh, by his own self-interest. He does not want to lose taxes, as he even mentions. I don't want to lose custom, tribute, toll. I don't want to lose money, so I'm not going to risk that. And as he says, I, I don't want any damage to become uh, to grow to the king. Again, so they, they, they worked him well. <laughs> they made it so it his self-interest was the primary thing at stake, and he took it uh, hook, line, and sinker. And he does a little history on uh, Jerusalem and says, yes, there is a history of rebellion. To be honest, what city doesn't have a history of some sedition and rebellion in the ancient world? I mean, it's not surprising. There were times, of course, where Jerusalem did act wickedly, but there were times where they were just defending their own sovereignty, and ultimately, they were defending their right to worship God as they typically did. Now, in the history books, that may appear to be sedition or rebellious, but really, they're their own sovereign country. But he is sold and says, go ahead and don't be slack in this manner. Go ahead and stop this work. I, I put a decree, and man, they are quick to do it. It says, as soon as they get that letter, with haste, they run over to Jerusalem, and it says, by force and power, cause them to stop the doing, to do the work. They didn't need to do that. <laughs> they could have just said, hey, here's the letter. you got to stop. But no, no, they're, they're taking glee in their opposition. Ha, we have gotten victory over you. You need, now need to stop. And they do. They stop the work of the Lord. We'll come back to that in just a bit for a little while. Friends, opposition is going to come. And, and opposition will come in different forms. Now, just to be practical, just thinking of different ways it's going to come. Some ways we see right here in this passage. Uh, sometimes it will come through the government. Sometimes, you know, oftentimes, the, the governing authorities are not favorable to the Christian faith. And again, that's true of much of the world. If you are a professing Christian in much of the world, it is, it, the government is not on your favor. You could be arrested, you could be thrown in jail. And as we said, that seems to be the direction things are heading in our country. You never know what the future holds. But we should not expect that the governing authorities are always going to favor Christianity Uh, or even protect Christianity. Opposition may come in in physical harm, in persecution. Uh, The the adversaries of the land, they could have just said, the king has made a decree, but no, they want to use force. They want to use power. They want to persecute them. We could add other forms of persecution or opposition. Sometimes it comes in, in a spiritual battle. Some people say, no, there's there's nobody saying or doing anything to me right now. No major issues in my life, but I just feel a sense of spiritual oppression. Something demonic, something, whatever it is, it's psychological, it's in my heart. I feel depressed, I feel anxious, I feel worried. There's opposition, even if it isn't something that you can see with your eyes. Oftentimes it's interpersonal. Somebody's assuming the worst. Somebody is accusing you of different things falsely. Maybe it's someone in the church. Maybe it's someone outside the church. Maybe it's someone from another church. Maybe it's a non-Christian in the community. Whatever it is, you face opposition 
in all different forms, in all different ways. And I could even add here, I think, when it comes to trials, uh, trials aren't always persecution. Trials sometimes are just hardships that we face in life, financial hardship, maybe a, an illness, maybe an injury, a sickness that you're struggling with right now. How do we respond to that? Keep our eyes on Jesus, and we keep moving forward. One thing I would say is make sure you're not guilty of the very thing that you're being accused of. So good sort of lesson here from Israel. Don't be rebellious. So if they had said, you're taking up arms against us, we're going to now take up arms against you. And they got into a fight, they got into a battle, war, and there were casualties and deaths, and the word gets back to Persia. What does that do? That tells the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, they were right. They were right all along. This is a rebellious, seditious, treacherous city after all, and I'm going to send some soldiers and we're going to put this down once and for all. Right? So they could prove their enemies right by engaging in the very thing that they're not called to engage in. I would say, if you're guilty, you know, if, if opposition comes against you, if you receive criticism about something and it's true, recognize your own heart. Here's what I do with, with criticism. First thing I do is consider the source. Consider the source. If, if the source is somebody that loves me, somebody that has my best interests at mind, a, a fellow pastor, a friend, an elder here at the church, a church member, and I, and I know that they re really just want what's best for me, I want to hear that criticism as best I can. Now, it doesn't mean I agree with them. I may at the end of the day still say, you know what, I appreciate you giving me that feedback, but I don't think that's the best way to see this, and I want to receive that well. If criticism comes from someone who doesn't have your best interests at in mind, I would generally say don't take it too seriously. Now, there may be some truth in that. It takes a very humble person to be able to say, Maybe there's some truth in this and I need to reflect on my own heart and my own soul. If somebody comes at you with an anonymous accusation, don't even read the email. <laughs> just throw it away. All right? So just ignore the anonymous stuff here. Uh, but usually, again, there'll be, uh, there'll be accusations that use exaggeration and lies and deception. Uh, just keep moving forward, focused uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be above reproach. Be someone whose desire is for peace. King David said in the Psalms, I am for peace, but they are for war. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, the New Testament says. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, be, be a conflict-averse person, right? So be someone who's not looking to start fights, not looking to start arguments, not looking to get into conflict with anybody, just looking to serve the Lord. In fact, somebody who, when they see a conflict beginning to arise, is willing to help address it and bring reconciliation. Uh, someone who is willing to say, I'm, I'm here to help try to resolve this. Uh, what happens so often, I think, in churches in general, is that you do start to have sort of infighting, and then people start to join one side and join the other side, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it all happens sort of beneath the radar until eventually it causes an immense amount of spiritual damage to the church and maybe even to its rep the reputation of Christ in the community. Be a peacemaker. The best sort of way to avoid division within a church family is not actually your pastors and elders. It's people in the church family who are willing to say, I don't have ears for that. I, I, I don't, I don't want to get involved in that conflict. 
or you need to go talk to so-and-so about this, right? Who are immediately willing to put down any type of conflict within the church. Be a peacemaker. Now, is there a time <laughs> to get into a conflict? Yes, there is. But you know what those times are? When the gospel is at stake or when you're trying to protect someone else, typically, right? Those are the times you're willing to actually get into a conflict. And let's be honest, most of the conflicts we get into in life, whether that's here at a church or anywhere in your work and your family, they're not about the gospel, <laughs> the purity of the gospel, and they're not about necessarily trying to protect someone else. So if that is the case, yes, there is a time to be strong, to protect um, uh, others and so forth, but in general, be a person of peace. Don't be guilty of the very thing people accuse you of. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be a peacemaker. Now look at verse 24. And this may have been an unexpected sort of a result of all that happened here. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. Can you imagine how discouraging and disheartening that must have been to Israel? Where are you, God? I, I thought you just called us to come back here and rebuild. I thought the whole point was that we're supposed to rebuild the temple. We're supposed to lay its foundations. We're supposed to offer sacrifices on the altar. We're supposed to renew the people of God. And now it's against the law for us to even rebuild. And we have the enemies here literally threatening to harm us and to kill us. Where are you, God, in the midst of this? But notice the rest of it. And it ceased until, not permanently, the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. And we'll get to this next week, Lord willing, uh, but they get right to work. They don't even ask for permission. They just say, all right, new king, we're going with Cyrus's decree, we're going to start building, and they just keep going. By the way, the time frame here, if you're doing your, your sort of research on Ezra, is a little bit uh, confusing. Uh, it's, it's really um, him kind of skipping ahead with Artaxerxes and going back with Darius. Over that hundred-year period, there are times in which the work of the Lord stops, and there are times in which the work of the Lord continues. In fact, it will stop not just for months, but sometimes years. So the point is, at times, the work on the house of God does actually cease entirely. Friends, remember, as Christians, yes, ultimately, we fight a winning battle. As we said before, the end of Revelation pretty clearly states it. Uh, we end up in glory with our king in a world without sin and suffering, sickness and Satan. That's where we're headed, and nothing's going to stop that day from coming. In fact, in Acts 1, it says, the day the Father has fixed. It's a fixed date, and it's coming. That doesn't mean that every battle that we fight will clearly display that same victory. There will be times in which it will seem as if sin has won the day. There are times in which Ministries will end. Churches will split. People will be severely, or faith will be severely hurt. And what, we, what do we do? We recognize that even in the midst of that, God is still at work. It's interesting, this week, two examples uh, came out clearly. One is Next Level Church. Um, and they published this they put this public, so I'm not revealing anything that shouldn't be revealed. Next Level Church was the largest, fastest growing church in New Hampshire. You know that. It's kind of an attractional church, big sort of 
display of, of you know, music and um, rapidly growing. Although there's some question of whether they exaggerated their numbers, which again is a problem to begin with. This is their letter. I'm going to just part of it. With a heavy heart, we unanimously agreed that we could not see a path forward to sustain this ministry. And we have each resigned from our positions at Next Level Church. This Sunday, February 19th, will be our last Sunday. For those of you at Concord, Keene, Summersworth, or West Boylston locations, we invite you to attend an in-person experience this weekend to give you one last opportunity to worship together and to express our love and gratitude to you for all your unwavering support for us as your location pastors. This news is hard to share. The four of us have made NLC our home, so the four remaining pastors, and we love the people God has called us to shepherd. You accepted us into your lives and allowed us to serve you as your pastor, a responsibility and call that none, none of us take for granted. And we are grieving this loss. Losing you is the hardest part of this all. With love, your four pastors. Did sin win? Did Satan win the day? Did he destroy a church? It may appear that way for the time. What Israel didn't know, of course, is that they would begin rebuilding again. The temple would be completed. The temple would be expanded. And most importantly, the Messiah himself would walk in that temple and bring salvation to Israel and to the world. Another example someone posted online, I won't leave the, I'll leave the name out, just found out my son is resigning from his position as pastor of a church in Western Mass. They voted Sunday to close after failing to reach people the last few years with evangelism and outreach. I'm praying for revival back in New England, but I feel as if the enemy has won there. Feeling heartbroken. And take that and apply it even to your own lives. You might say, you know, I, I, I was so sure that God was going to work. I was so confident that he was going to heal. I was so confident that this ministry was going to really explode and to work. I was so confident that I would end up going to the mission field or whatever it is. What happened, God? Again, ultimately, God's call is to trust him, even when we feel defeated. The ultimate battle will be won. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But along the way, God uses even these small defeats for our, his ultimate purposes, for his glory, and for our good. How do we respond to opposition? We expect it, and often comes with deception. We keep our eyes on Jesus, love our enemies, bless those who persecute us, even forgive them and pray that they would come to know Jesus if they don't already. We seek peace. We're not here to start fights. We're here to do the work of the Lord, be a peacemaker, submit to authority. I didn't talk much about that, but our general disposition should be to submit to governing authorities. We're, we're, here to, we're not here to create sedition, rebellion, uh, treachery, as they accused Israel of. And we should not lose heart when we feel defeated. Here's the truth of the matter, friends. God is interested not just in the destination, 
but the journey. As I said, God could at any moment in a single day rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and had this work completely done. I mean, it's not a difficulty for God to do it. But instead, he calls Israel to rebuild. And in that process, what's happening is they are being renewed as the people of God, which means even this opposition that they face is part of his plan to shape and mold a people for his own glory. The same is true for us. If God wanted to, the world could be one to Christ by tomorrow, right? I mean, there's no limits. God, with God, nothing is impossible. But that's not his will. His will is that he uses us to persevere, to be faithful, to be molded, to be shaped till the work on earth is done. And God says, and now's the time. And sends his son back for us. Until that day, help us to respond, may he help us to respond well to opposition in a way that glorifies him and prepares us for eternity. Would you pray with me? Our great and gracious Father, I'm not sure what, of course, what everyone in this room right now is facing. But for many here, maybe something immediately jumped to mind. Something going on in their life just popped right up. <laughs> whether that's a physical ailment they're facing right now that has just slowed them down in life, whether it's someone else causing problems, whether, again, it's the spiritual oppression, a a sense of depression about life. But whatever it is, Lord, maybe for others, this is just something they're going to reflect on, and it's just preparation for what the future may hold. But, Father, we take confidence that your word is true and helpful and applicable for us here today. Father, thank you for the truth of your scripture. Thank you, Lord, that you prepare your people, shape and mold us. Lord, when we are in glory, when that great and glorious day comes, there'll be no more opposition. Before that day, help us to face it in a way that gives you glory, that's pleasing in your sight, that magnifies our Savior. Be at work in us, even as we seek to do the work of the Lord in our community and in this world. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.